You're listening to a Bespoken Media production. Welcome back to Interface from SWGFL, one third of the UK Safer Internet Centre. If you're a teacher or educator, we are here to help you support the children and young people around you. So you can play a part in keeping them safe, confident and happy in all that they do online. If you really want to make a positive difference for children and young people online, you need to understand what's going on for them. You need the data. It's all about the data. And one really useful way to get that data is to ask them what's going on, to get that detailed picture. And you can do that through survey work. Hello, I'm Adrian Katz. I'm Director of YouthWorks Consulting. And I run the Cyber Survey, which has now run for 16 years. Uh, we started in 2008. So, hi, Adrian. Thanks so much for being on the on this episode of Interface. Really appreciate having you here to, to talk about the Cyber Survey and your experiences of hearing the views of young people as well. I think a good place to start probably is the most recent survey that, that you've done, which I think covered 2021 and 2022. Uh, would you mind just telling us a bit about that, how you went about it, and, and what you found as well, please? Well, we normally do the cyber survey in November. And if you can remember, 2021 was just a series of lockdowns and sort of cancelled Christmas and lockdown going into January. And because we access young people through schools, it was an extremely difficult time. Teachers were stretched to the limit. Um, Only certain groups of young people were in school. Others were locked down at home. We think it was a miracle that we did achieve a sample at all, even though small. And we had got one in 2020. So we had 2019 before COVID and then two samples during COVID. And this was really revelatory because some kinds of online harm we were used to seeing had gone down and others soared away and were rarely um, we saw the highest levels of young people reporting having viewed suicide content in the history of the cyber survey. We also noticed that anorexia, people who'd viewed material about anorexia, were suddenly being overtaken by people, mainly boys, but not exclusively boys, uh, looking at material about bulking up the body and potentially buying steroids or other mysterious powders where you don't know what you're swallowing, and using lockdown to work out. So while we applaud people who are doing healthy things like a workout or training or lifting weights, it's great that you're keeping well. There's this added risk of buying stuff and also um, really measuring how your body measures up against other people all the time. So that catapulted a large different number of young people into our awareness, while, of course, those looking at anorexia material did continue to increase. So those were trends that lockdown seems to have caused. And of course, if you couldn't have a relationship where you could actually physically get together, sending nudes grew, understandably, um, in that time. Cyberbullying actually reduced because you weren't irritating one another all day at school and then it was building into a cyberbullying episode. On the other hand, um, racism rose, uh, misogyny and sexism rose. 
So we saw a kind of polarizing of the population. On the one hand, people were much more caring about their friends. Um, they, some people invested far more time in contacting their friends, even people they hadn't seen for years, they knew in primary school, rather than learning online. For them, their drive was to look after their soul. And they contacted every person they possibly could find. And I applaud them because actually they came out of it slightly more stable than people who were socially isolated. So they kind of knew what they needed. And I'm sure they were shouted at by parents and family to get off the phone or to get off talking to friends. But in a way, it saved them. It kept them connected and so we saw these different trends, and the question we have to all ask ourselves now is what is the right way to respond to what young people have experienced, including bereavement? I just wanted to pick up on what you're saying about cyberbullying, because you were saying, and, and quite rightly so, that it, it reduced in the UK, and prevalence of that seemed to go down throughout periods of lockdown. Um, but obviously that wasn't the case in other countries of the world. We, we had countries where, and particularly you know, not too far away in like Ireland, where it massively spiked. Did you manage to get any insight as to why in the UK it, it went down in that way, whereas in other countries it went up? Well, I have seen those figures for Ireland. I would say that our sample is fairly small because of the lockdowns and whether it represents the whole of the UK, I, I couldn't say. But we distinguish between cyberbullying and cyber aggression. So cyberbullying is when someone targets you intentionally, you know, repeatedly, specifically with the intent of hurting you. Cyber aggression is stuff you see where people are saying really nasty things that may be racist or sexist or in other ways totally offensive. But it's in general chat online or comments below the line. It's not directed at you personally. So we distinguish between the two and not everybody else does. And so... That could get confused in a survey because there's no question that sexism and racism rose. So if you said to my participants, did you see more racism and misogyny? They'd say yes, uh, to a considerable extent. But if you say, did you personally get cyberbullied? Then the level was a bit lower. Not much lower, but lower. <laughs> and as we've never seen drops, really, cyberbullying has been stable for years. It doesn't improve and it doesn't deteriorate overall. So when we notice even a 2 or 3% drop, we, we remark on it. But as I say, maybe our sample isn't totally representative, but cyber aggression is very high. And that's because we distinguished. So I think just as this is a podcast for, for teachers, I think it'd be quite good just to understand where, where your sample comes from. How, how do young people get involved in this survey? We invite schools. It's free for schools. And they, uh, it tends to attract schools who already do a lot about online safety or anti-bullying because they believe they get a lot of data from it, which is really useful to them. So you could argue that schools who do too little are less likely to participate. So they may indeed have had a worse experience. I tend to know some of these teachers who really put their heart and soul into equality issues and therefore they come back year after year. Um, the young people are invited to do it between the ages of 11 and 17 
And um, it's very private. It's totally anonymous. There's a code identifying the school so that if there's a safeguarding issue, we can get in touch. But apart from their age and gender, they don't give away anything about themselves or their family. The privacy is important. But yes, I think this just the selection, the self-selection of schools who want to be part of this, want to contribute and want to use the data and the messages from young people in their own work. Um, you could say they are alert to the issues and perhaps a school that does nothing or less may have a completely different rate. So are we perfectly representative? No, we can only work with the data we receive. I was going to um, actually ask Adrian, how 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 do you guys obtain the information? Is it they do like an online survey? Is it like a private room? Because you seem to have a lot of research and obviously their children and young people are willing to participate, which is really important. They are, of course, anonymous. Um, some schools put small groups into their computer room at a time, like a sort of batch, but they're on their own with the computer. Other schools have tablets and they tell everyone you can use your tablet to access it. Um, It can be done on the phone, but it's quite hard because it's quite lengthy and it's much better on a laptop or a tablet. During lockdown, we allowed schools to send the link home to the young person who could then access it from home. And that worked fine. So we could continue it, of course. But what is important from the safeguarding perspective, we, we want to know that the school has taken a register of who's on the site at any given time. And this is because if somebody wrote something really drastic, we would be able to say at 9.15 on Thursday, a young man of 12 wrote this. Can you get onto it? So they would act straight away. And has that been particularly common in in past years having disclosures made on the survey there are always a few there are always a few and you have to be scanning the open boxes all the time so we have a lot of questions where it's a yes or no or um, sometimes often hardly ever never so those are managed by the system but we've got a lot of open boxes where a young person could write a whole paragraph if they want But there has to be somebody reading those all the time, and it's usually me. So I look at them every day because if somebody wrote something and I felt they were in real distress, I would want to act fast. And it's very difficult because on given some days you get 500, you know, in tomorrow you might get 20. So um, also I've had wonderful students working with me in the last few years, but you have to make a judgment and you have to look. You have to take the view that these people are talking to you and you have the responsibility to. And I I have to say, I, I love the fact that they're talking to us. I feel privileged and I read every single person's entry. And I find that is the way to be sensitive to what we should study. So we have a wonderful artist who does like a graffiti banner, 12 foot long, with different questions and issues. And people write with a big fat pen or they spray the banner with a slogan. The latest slogan was trust, don't combust. 
because they thought that adults kept overreacting. Every time something went wrong online, they overreacted or combusted. I was also thinking it's very different with parents or guardians because you always there's always going to be that thing of, you know, oh, like stuff ain't now, I know what I'm doing. Whereas with other people like yourselves, it's more of a distance. Even with teachers, it's more, yes. I don't know what that, I don't know how to explain what it is, but it seems more comfortable sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what advice would you give, especially to guardians and parents? Because I feel like there's always kind of that, oh, like, no, stuff it can figure out myself and I need your help. Um, but I feel like with yourselves, people like you and Gareth, it's more of a distance and you guys love your job and you're good at it. And, you know, young people are more comfortable to then, you know, share their experiences and their thoughts and things like that. Well, we're trying very hard at the moment to give advice to parents, foster carers and guardians not to confiscate phones, even when the the wrongdoing has nothing to do with the internet. A lot of young people have said they know what my phone means to me and they confiscate it if I've done something wrong. So that means you're really uh, disincentivizing anybody from telling you they've got a problem online because their first thought is you're going to take away their phone or cut the Wi-Fi or do something else. And I try to show how very risk-averse adults who are restrictive and clamping down all the time can actually drive people to greater risk because people told us quite openly how they hack controls and how they hack the router settings and the, how they hack all sorts of things or use workarounds. I mean, if you can monitor a phone and you really understand what you're looking for and you're skilled at doing it and you can get the young person to agree because you explain that it's for their safety, you might get somewhere. But too many adults were monitoring phones and didn't have the vaguest idea what they were looking for. So at the same time, they were damaging the trust relationship and not getting any security uh, advantage. And so that's my, when you say, what is my advice to parents and carers, because I've been working in the care sector for the last two and a half years, that's my advice to them. Don't drive a young person to be secretive. That's that's a really interesting point. And and by the way, um, trust not combust. I'm going to magpie that for future parent sessions because I love that. I think I think that's brilliant. It's it's so much about the discussion and the engagement and the importance of that for parents and carers. I think, uh, Princess, I'd like to ask you whether you think for young people there's also a need to recognise that they are going to grow up, leave you, be independent people. And really part of what we should be doing is preparing them for that that independent managing their own life online moment. And that if we're over-restrictive, it's like if you won't let a child play with a pair of scissors, then they go to their friend's house and they see this shiny thing that cuts. And in two seconds, they have cut themselves. It's like, you know, is there a question about how we prepare people for leaving care, adulthood, managing their whole life with their phone, for example? I think that, again, like you spoke about, is you need to have that trust. You need to be able to have that trust so that your the young person can talk to you and feel comfortable talking about it because even myself at 21, without the training that I'd had 
whether that was in school with my mom. And again, I have an older brother as well, which I think normally plays a big part having a sibling that has gone through things. And also as an older brother, he was always policing me on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, all of those things. But yeah, I was given the example of how um, TikTok, this was very recently, like last week, I had come across a post that was kind of idolizing um, suicide. And um, I went to the comments and I was shocked to see a lot of people had agreed with the post. They were very openly talking about topics that I really and truly had only ever heard these type of things on the news when they talk about, um, you know, young people um, falling into these um, groups and things like that. And I'd never seen anything like that. And honestly, my heart kind of broke to think that whether we there wasn't someone that they felt they could talk to or whether they hadn't got enough training. So I do think that what you're doing is so important to be able to go into schools, to have these seminars, these workshops, because I'd, I'd, I've also spoken about how the workshops that I had when I was younger is very, very different. These young people, their online profiles, it's their lives. I know that sometimes it can be very silly to adults or even people that are older, but it, it really and truly is their whole entire world and even during um COVID I'd love to get your thoughts and research on this during COVID um I, I was still in um sixth form I think and I found myself glued to my phone and it wasn't like the normal Instagram it was literally um video chat rooms now I again because of the e-safety just knowledge that I have I was I'm very like I don't I don't talk to strangers I don't like to do this it was normally like my school friends but there were so many things I was witnessing that I was absolutely shocked about that people had just never had the conversations with guardians parents or school was really really lacking in that department I just think that it's not something that's taken seriously I'm not sure if that's something that you have also noticed that it's just not something that school regards as um an important thing to do, it seems that it's kind of brushed to the side. This is Interface, a podcast for educators about digital and online life from the Southwest Grid for Learning. We'll be back with our excellent guest in just a minute. The Interface podcast is all about keeping children, young people and education communities safe, happy and confident in everything relating to technology and online life. And the other thing to know is that SWGFL, the people behind Interface, have a whole host of support, tools and resources. We also have a number of helplines available. One of these is Posh, the professional's online safety helpline, which is open to any educators and professionals who need support with an online safety issue. Give us a call. Thanks, Jess. And not only that, schools and other organisations can download the Report Harmful Content button to add to their website to support any user over the age of 13 in reporting anything they experience online that they find harmful or worrying. Also, take a look at our 360 degree safe tools. These tools support a comprehensive whole school approach to online safety. There's also Project Evolve, an educational toolkit to support digital competency in children and young people. There is a lot available and it's free free is always good and you're right Jess it is a lot and I appreciate it's a lot for you to take in listening like this so don't worry if you've been scrabbling around for a pen or you're not sure where the pause or rewind buttons are you can find all of this information online at swgfl.org.uk and you can also find us on twitter and instagram with the handle at swgfl underscore official also we've put all the links you need in the show notes for the interface series that you'll find in your podcast player 
Thanks for sticking with us. This is Princess Laurel with Gareth Court. Back to our conversation with Adrian Katz from YouthWorks. The the best examples of involving parents that I've seen have either been to invite parents at suitable times to come and see what their young people have created, which could be a video, a play, uh, some something that they've created. They come to see their child's work. Or I've seen very successfully, certainly in the Midlands, year six parents invited to come in and then year eight from a nearby secondary um, sort of digital champions came. And with adult experts, um, they had a young person sit beside a parent at a screen and really take them through things so that they could look at it with somebody, open the apps, play around with it. And they felt it was easier to ask a question and be seen as stupid from a young person that they didn't know, then ask the expert. I've remarked to colleagues about this of parents is, is that for some parents, if they wanted to go on holiday to, I don't know, Gran Canaria, they'd fire up their web browser and off they go and they'd be on you know, TripAdvisor for reviews of this and they'd be booking the hotel and the flights, they'd be looking at reviews of the restaurants. Yeah. And then you ask them to like go and find out some information about how to support their children online and it's like the shutters come down. They have no idea how to use any of the same skills to find a different type of information, you know, it's 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 weird, isn't it? It sometimes feels almost like blinkered by it, almost the fact that it's so scary they don't quite know how to engage with it. Yes. When the reality is, is that you know, for many of the day to day things their children are experiencing, that they aren't scary. They are part of modern life, and you know, hopefully, it should be things that you can have as normal conversation about as anything else in their lives. But it, it's an interesting dynamic, I find. I just find for some parents, it really almost blinkers them when when it shouldn't really. And they, they have some of the skills already to be able to access that and engage with that. They're just never quite sure how. Yes, I met a GP once who spent the whole, it was at a social event and he kept telling me how desperately worried he was about his daughter who was 12 and her online life. And he went on and on about it. I said, "Is it? are you worried because something has happened or you suspect something's happened. He said, no, no, I'm just terribly worried. So I said, have you taken any steps to make her safer? Or have you talked to her? Have you, you know, put a few settings in place? No. (laughs) So, and yet he insisted he was desperately worried, but she hadn't given any cause for worry and she seemed quite a responsible girl. But the paralyzed parent who's fearful but doesn't act is quite common. And um, that's not to suggest that every parent, I mean, some parents are just so busy and so fraught and so exhausted that they can't really be expected to turn up after work, after putting kids to bed, after feeding them, after doing all the laundry. You know, it's just one step too far. So the question is, do we need to go to parents in easier places where they are? In one project in Bradford I was involved in, we ran a creche and provided food and transport. And we had translators and we had um, teenagers who were about 16 who were part of our project, assisting the parents and asking the parents questions. So if they needed to explain something, they were really wonderful. And one of them loved the work so much, she went on to do psychology at Aberdeen. And I've never forgotten her. I, I was about to say the same thing. Yeah, you know, you were talking brilliantly earlier about the work that you and fellow researchers do in terms of making 
young people comfortable so that they do open up more and they are able to engage more and and actually parents and carers are, are no different are they really we, we kind of we need to find ways of engaging with them and of course if you sat a young person down and said right I'm going to talk to you for an hour non-stop about online safety you're going to sit there and listen <laughs> they probably wouldn't be that no. interested in it either no. so you know why why would we expect adults to be any different it's it's about you know how you kind of bring them in and then empower them um I don't know if you found this Adrian but I've, I've found with so many schools that I've worked with that have managed to do this more successfully it's it's the little and often approach isn't it because yes. as I said it's part of it's part of daily life so if you can talk about little and often rather than right we're going to sit down and talk about grooming for an hour then you're probably going to have more successful results you'd hope yes little little newsletters little kind of updates are quite useful because if something is trending and there's a great big hoax or challenge in one way you don't want to alert them to the specific thing because they'll say to their child have you seen it and they'll immediately look it up but you also want to say we are seeing more scams more whatever it is be alert don't tell them about a specific one (laughs) but um is it helpful to them to say um we've noticed a trend or we're thrilled to tell you that x has gone down i mean sometimes parents want some good news too you know um little and often i think gareth you're absolutely right You've done like extensive research from 2008 to, and it's ongoing. I wanted to know, like, is there anything that has drastically changed in kind of safety concerns on the online experience? Because I think a lot of parents kind of like what you said, their whole thing is that, okay, your child's online, like be scared. But from, I don't I'm not entirely sure when like social media or like the online experience became like a thing, but at least from the early 2000s, there was already that whole, you know, MySpace, Facebook, all of that. So has there been a drastic like change from then to now? Yes, there has. Um, The arrival of cameras, of course, in a phone. Don't forget the first phones didn't have cameras. Did have cameras, yeah. So when you got a camera, then you got people sort of provoking fights to video them and happy slapping, which is now not a term anybody uses, but that was a thing in 2008. And um, I still have met uh, boys recently, as recently as three years, in the last three years, who have provoked fights to film, to big themselves up with other boys. So that hasn't entirely gone away, but it's not as dominant. What has changed is that after 2013, people, um, smartphones came along. And of course, initially adults bought them, but then they began to pass their second, get onto their second phone and give one to their child. So after 2013, we're starting to get young people with smartphones. And this pocket computer that's more powerful than any computer they had actually and they could roam the net and as one boy said it's a window on the world so you get a a wonderful amount of useful and wonderful learning information coming your way but also the harmful and nasty stuff so after that the trend to harmful online content really becomes uh, a concern and we've seen we've watched it we use the word inexorable rise because it's just gone up and up. So it's not as if the platforms are really controlling it. And we're seeing 
more self-harm content, more pro-suicide, pro-anorexia, pro-bulk up is new. But those trends are getting worse all the time. When I say worse, what I mean is more young people report having seen it. But equally, young people are becoming more resilient. So we've got um, a majority who are pretty resilient. They're clever. They know what to do. They're more digitally skilled. As you say, they've often got an older brother or sister, and they've kind of really got a handle on how to who they would call. They they know what they would do. They lack problem solving. But at the same time, as we've got this majority becoming more digitally resilient, we've got a, a vulnerable minority that's quite considerable who are not only more at risk, but they're becoming less resilient and they acutely hurt. And one of the reasons is not only because of the harm in the risk itself, but because their phone means so much to them or their internet connection means so much. So for them, if if you are taken away from all your friends or you um, have special needs and you're quite socially isolated, your connection means more to you than the young person who's in a football club, got mates there, meets other kids somewhere else, seeing a lot of other children and teens. For, for the socially isolated person and someone who feels that the technology makes me equal because nobody knows if I'm in a wheelchair. So for somebody like that, it's their whole life. It's it's absolutely everything. So it's their life for most young people, but more so, even more so for those who are vulnerable. So then if they get that space as a refuge and a place they go to to escape my issues, as they tell me, then to have that space hurtful as well, you can imagine that for them it is really um, an acute uh, harm and they may have repercussions because it brings up loss and abandonment or trauma or other experiences they've had in the past. So as, you, as you've rightly pointed out that you know, vulnerable users have very different experiences online to, to lots of other young people. And of course, in schools, they do a lot to support the needs of their vulnerable young people in their education and other aspects of life. Is there more they could be doing in terms of their online safety provision for these vulnerable young people? I see online safety in schools as a great big triangle. The lower base is universal, online safety for everyone. The middle tier is targeted. So if there's specific people who've been cyberbullied or who've experienced a, a particular online risk, but in other ways are more or less um, managing, you need to give them targeted advice and targeted support. At the tip of the triangle are those very acutely vulnerable people who perhaps have mental health difficulties, who have a tendency to depression or who may be um, looking at um, self-harm or suicide content. And they need a very specific, acute support. And I think when you differentiate your young people that way, um, it helps you to move off the universal online safety, which isn't quite enough for them, but it may be doing pretty well for the majority. Absolutely, Totally agree. Tar- targeted messaging, obviously, to, to meet their needs, as teachers would do in all other aspects of education. So it, it shows it's, it's exactly yes, the same yes. here. So 
with that in mind, and obviously they need to know what the experiences of their young people are, and the Cyber Survey 2023 is already running. How can schools and teachers get involved? Please get involved. It's only with data that we can do this work. It's free to schools to participate. You need to email admin at youthworks with an S, youthworksconsulting.co.uk and say you're interested and we'll send you FAQs and uh, all the information you need. We need to register two contacts at your school for safeguarding reasons. It will run from most of the autumn term until after anti-bullying week because some schools really find anti-bullying week is a good moment to do it and we urge you to get in touch. You can also look at uh, www.thecybersurvey.co.uk and you can see past reports there and uh, everything else. Thank you. So great, great to hear from Adrian there, her thoughts and her experiences. And as she mentioned, the Cyber Survey 2023 is already up and running and is running until the third week of November. You can find all the details at www.thecybersurvey.co.uk. Please do have a look and please do get involved because as Adrian said, without young people and schools getting involved, there is no data and it gives such valuable insights. So please do go take a look and all the details will be in the show notes as well. So, Gareth, what are some of the main things that people should take from this chat? I, th- I think there's so many things you could take from it, isn't there? She gave so many great examples of, of her work and, and fellow researchers. Uh, I think one of the best ones, the, the best one for me that I'm definitely taking away because I'm going to be using it too, is, is Trust Not Combust. You're which say that. You, you could definitely get a T-shirt <laughs> printed on. I think it's a whole whole opportunity for a line of merch here if, if needed. But it, it's a great one, isn't it? Because it just sums it up so importantly, the, the importance of relationships and the importance of discussion between adults and young people about their digital experiences and as adrian rightly said you know you can you can fall into the trap of thinking that the internet is a really horrible place where everyone's out to get you and if you take that message forward and scaremonger all that happens is that children and young people turn off and you end up sometimes driving the very problems you're trying to prevent underground so yeah trusting rather than combusting totally behind that one so i love that one uh how about you what did you take away you stole my one I wanted to say man um but another one I would say this was the first time I think I've heard an adult say it's not always the best thing to take a phone because sometimes that can break the trust and sometimes it is a form of overreacting and which can damage the relationship between you know whoever it is the guardian the parent the teacher whoever um I think I felt very validated, actually, because I really remember my phone being taken away. And it's like, oh, my gosh. Um, but, yeah, that was the biggest thing that I took away from it. Establishing that trust with that young person is so important and validating their feelings, which I think is a thing that is not done a lot. So that is definitely the biggest thing that I've taken away from this talk. It, isn't it just, though, you think about, you know, if you're under 13, and you're not supposed to be on TikTok and you go on TikTok and something happens to you. It doesn't really help if an adult that you go to for help turns around and goes, oh, well, you're under 13, you shouldn't have been on TikTok. You know, it doesn't it doesn't yeah. give any kind of sort of support to them. So, yeah, I think I think that's an important part around that, isn't it? For 
for teachers and educators listening to this is that we need to think very carefully about the language that we use when we're talking to young people about 100%. this so that we can build that trust so that as you rightly said we do give validation to those feelings and i think the other thing is you know as adrian said without schools taking part in this survey it's one less opportunity to get any kind of insight so taking the time to to find ways to get those insights from young people about their digital experiences even if it's taking the results of previous surveys and putting it in front of the young people you work with and asking them what they think about it. Sometimes that's a way of opening up rather than having to ask them direct, maybe personal or sensitive questions. But the more more we can have those discussions and use the data to, to prompt those discussions, the better, really. So if you can get involved in the survey, please do. It's, it's a really good thing to get involved in. I really hope this episode of Interface has been useful. Thanks so much for being with us. You will always find links in the show notes for these episodes to learn more about each topic. And don't forget, you can subscribe on your favourite podcast app so that episodes of Interface are automatically downloaded to your device whenever they're released. And please recommend us to a friend or fellow teacher who you think would enjoy this podcast. And you can also find us on social media at SWGFL underscore official on both Twitter slash x and instagram interface is a podcast series from southwest grid for learning part of the uk safer internet center this is princess laval with gareth court interface is produced by caris ball with sound designs by joel cox and original music from alex fraser it's a bespoken media production <laughs>